Welcome to the Digital Works podcast. This podcast is about digital stuff in the cultural sector. My name is Ash Mann and today I'm joined by my colleague Caspian Turner. Good morning, Caspian. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's a beautiful sunny day here in London. It's incredibly cold. It feels like winter has finally arrived, which I think is probably a good thing because it's February now. Yeah, it should have it should have started really. Before before coming to the the studio to re- record the podcast, I was uh, I went to the Globe to have a cup of tea in their cafe. I'd strongly recommend their cafe. It's a really nice space. And because the Globe always has lots of stuff going on, there were lots and lots of school groups, which seemed like pure chaos. You know, my respect and admiration for teachers is is endless, even more so when those teachers actively decide to take large groups of children into central London to cultural institutions yeah you're, sh- I mean, you're shaking your head yeah just thinking like sometimes on the tube you see large groups of school children and I can just imagine how easy it would be just to leave one behind on the platform <laughs> and thinking how stressful that would be this is a complete tangent but I'm, I'm going to go with it because I, I remember trips into London at primary school and it's always super exciting um going you know going on the coach and the, and then getting on the tube and you never gave any thought to logistics ner- the logistics and the nervous breakdown that you were probably causing your teacher and the sort of one parent volunteer that was looking incredibly harassed bringing up the rear trying to make sure that no, no child was left behind regressing their life decisions there, there was that amazing set of of live tweets from the bloke who accompanied his child's school trip to the science museum that the man was at simon from harlow on twitter and his tweets were sort of back in 2018 now i think but it was a, a searing insight into the stratospherically high stress levels that accompany any school trip and the feeling of you know that you put that many children together and then plunk them into central london and you've you've created a, a chaos machine i've just tried to look up those tweets and the tweets aren't loading yet, but the headings themselves just outline the ordeal. <laughs> the children's curiosity quickly proved to be the most annoying thing on the trip so far. <laughs> I'm going to read that. It's brutally honest. He was a, a husk of a of a man by the end of the day. I think. Um, anyway, but that that was a, a a fun a fun tangent. I was yeah playing spectator whilst sipping my cup of Earl Grey. In, in the globe all the kids looked to be having a great time I think there was a multitude of nationalities because the uh, the guide was congratulating the the children on their excellent English um, and I can confirm that children regardless of their nationality like to run around and scream so that was that was fun so today we've got an interview with Katie Moffat and Katie is head of digital at the audience agency she is a mission-led charity whose purpose is to enable cultural organisations to use national data to increase their relevance, reach and resilience. And and Katie's had a long and varied career and she brings a really interesting perspective to the things that she's observed people are struggling with and the common elements to organisations and individuals that seem to be doing digital well. 
I, I <laughs> once again the interview with Katie was beset by technical difficulties with microphones, and I'm starting to think the the common denominator in all this is not faulty equipment. It might be me. <laughs> However, we were in a studio that had four microphones, and three of those microphones either didn't work at all or sort of made a, a faint rattling noise, which uh, was quite. Uh, annoying and so once again Katie and I just like with the the interview I did with Mike Harris we ended up sharing a microphone uh, which hopefully doesn't compromise the the quality of the conversation but it was maybe that's the key to its success yeah I mean it was good because this microphone was on a on a, a stand that you could sort of swing backwards and forwards whereas when Mike and I uh, sat down to have a chat, we were on it with a, with a fixed microphone, which meant that we had to sit very, very close together. And Mike was essentially sat on my lap, um, which is not a, not a professional uh, dynamic to conduct a, an interview in. Fortunately, with Kate and I, there was no lap sitting, um, but we did have to swing a microphone back and forth between us. I, we, we cover a huge range of stuff. Um, we, you know, from Katie's career that started in a council press office through to how digital has evolved over the last decade or so. Katie's thoughts on strategy, on digital leadership in the in the cultural sector. I hope a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed speaking with Katie. I think she is really smart, insightful, but explains herself in a really down-to-earth and accessible way. So this is my interview with Katie Moffat. Hi, Katie. Hi. Thanks for coming and being on our podcast. It's very exciting. Thank you for inviting me. So you've been working with digital things in and around the art sector for for a while now. So I'm interested to get your perspective on what you think has changed and got better and maybe the things that haven't changed mm. or have maybe got worse. <laughs> But I, I, I was I was on your LinkedIn this morning because I was like, how did Katie get into <laughs> get into the the job that she did? And you worked in the PR department of a council, as far as I can tell, <laughs> back in the nineties. So how what was your route into digital? Oh no, LinkedIn. Um, yeah. So well, God, you're going back years now. So my original path or career was in kind of traditional media relations so I work, I did work in a press office of a council that was interesting for many reasons and then I went and worked for a consultancy and that was a, a kind of comms agency and they worked with a lot of consumer brands and it was kind of PR and it was all glitzy and stuff like that. And then I sort of did a sideways move to another agency that mainly did events, but they had a really small department that was called the multimedia department. And uh, it was about, God, I'm old. It was about 1999, that sort of time. And they used to make CD-ROMs, which for you young folk um, were like, I don't know, what were they? They were like earlier than websites. They were things that you put in your computer and they sometimes they were games and other times they were like ways that you could, they were like a sort of mini website thing. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so I, w I ended up being a project manager in that department and then we started building like early stage websites, which were rubbish. And again, it was around the time of like the first internet bubble. So like boo.com for old people who might remember that. Uh, then, so, th so that was that. I don't know if you wanted my whole life history. I do. This you is 
just asking about the uh, the uh, council thing. So uh, then, so I worked there for a few years and I actually genuinely loved it. And I really, I just loved everything about it. I loved uh, the job, but also I loved everything. I instantly thought I found something that I really find engaging and the whole kind of new stuff and also just building things not me personally as project manager but so but then I went on maternity leave and I didn't want to go back to work full-time and at the time it wasn't the most how to say this diplomatically it wasn't the most easiest job to go back into in uh, part-time so I went freelance basically and then actually the two things converged so I had a background in sort of comms digital experience and I ended up doing like work that involved the two things and then gradually they converged and yeah I ended up doing lots of so around about 2007 2008 I started specializing in sort of digital strategy type stuff a lot of social media stuff around that time and things like that the end of my exciting life and I, I I guess the reason I asked the question is because Sometimes people get in touch with me, sort of people at university or people just starting out in their career and they're like, how do you get into digital? How do you build a mm-hmm. digital career? It feels like there's not necessarily a defined path or, mm-hmm. or obvious way in. And it feels like because the expectations around what digital roles need to know and do in cultural organizations is pretty broad, mm-hmm. that actually it's everyone seems to have made their own fairly circuitous way into it. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. And actually maybe being a bit of a generalist is helpful. And having those, especially those comm skills, I think is super, super important. Mm. And I think it's it's really it's really interesting that you started with CD-ROMs and the first dot-com bubble. I, I guess just at a, a high level, maybe what, do you feel, or rather, how do you feel the cultural sector has engaged with digital? Because I guess it's maybe moved from a sort of new thing, a nice to have, towards something that everyone should be doing, mm. towards the way, the the primary way that so many things happen now. It's the first thing I'd say is obviously it depends what area of digital we're talking about. So a lot of what I've just talked about is like generally around um you know, let's call it digital for comms. So whether that's websites, whether that's social media, digital marketing, whatever. But of course, um, there's a whole lot, you know, there's there's all sorts of different types of digital activities. So digital as part of the, as part of an experience or the artistic programme, you know, you've kind of got, you know, lots of other things that require lots of quite specific skill sets. So when people talk about getting into sort of digital, it's, I think there's a question there about even maybe what they mean about that. Yeah, I mean, I th- so I think we have the cult. When we talk about the cultural sector generally, yeah, I think it's there's been a huge sort of uh, development in the levels of sophistication around the use of digital. I'm I think we have got to a place where we're no longer talking about the latest shiny thing. I think I hope, but you know, I, there are there's also still unfortunately some of those misnomers around um, you know online engagement is the way to reach massive audiences or new audiences or whatever with not much discussion or thought about whether you know those audiences might be busy doing other things I mean certainly on a very prosaic level things like you know sophistication around use of social media 
is much improved. The other thing about uh, the other thing I, I did really want to say about the kind of um, how the cultural sector is sort of you know what the changes have been over the last let's say um, ten years is I think there's a, a massive difference between actually even between um, types of organisations within the sector. So obviously museums um, to performing arts to visual arts to um, actually her- you know those organisations in the, that would be classified as being in the heritage sector and not to massively generalise. But I, th- I you know I think museums historically have been a bit faster with digital stuff and you know I'm sure there's um, many reasons around that to do with them you know to do with what they do and and the kinds of people they employ to do those things but um we've definitely come on a long way but th- there are still massive challenges and largely of course um preaching to the converted they're around resource and funding and lack of means that it's often hard for cultural organizations to do really good stuff and i guess on on that point i was talking to a mutual friend of ours chris unit the other day and we were we were talking about how I think we were talking about social media and and the sort of environment that's needed to be needs to be created in order for people in organisations to be able to engage with social media to make the most of it. Mm. And I I sort of said, oh, you need to have time and space to be able to do these things well. And Chris said, well, that's the question, isn't it? Is it do organisations actually want to do it well, or do they just want to do it well enough? And actually, it feels like all too often lots of digital activity falls into the we're doing it we're doing it well enough you know we've done that we've done some emails we've done some social media we've done some digital advertising we've done there's a digital aspect to um the artistic Mm -hmm. program or the curatorial program there's a digital we're doing some teacher resources online and i i wonder what your thoughts are on whether cultural heritage organizations should continue trying to spread themselves across the full breadth of the you know all the possibilities that digital presents ticking all those boxes so that they can say to funders or boards or whoever it might be that yeah oh yeah we're doing that or whether actually effectiveness and efficiency and impact would come from doing less and ensuring that what you are doing is making a difference is high quality Uh, so i think the answer to that is yes (laughs) <laughs> the number of times that I say to organisations that, you know, I work a lot um, with all sorts of different cultural organisations of all different sizes and across art forms. And the number of times I say to um, people, in fact, last week I was working with theatre and I said exactly that. So it's better to do. So this was a specific conversation around social media. And I said it's better to do one or two channels really well and just forget the others like nobody is going to be bothered if you're not on Instagram and um, also last week I was at um, an event I was talking at um, an analytics event and Watershed's uh, communications manager was there and she was saying that they don't use Instagram which I thought was quite interesting in itself because Watershed are known both as being quite digitally savvy they are and also um, they have quite a young audience so you would naturally assume that Instagram was a good one for them and she was really clear that 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 was a very conscious decision around time and resource and that they at the moment could not give it the you know the attention that it needed to do it well and so they weren't going to do it and I and it it shouldn't be a brave decision to do that but actually I think it is better to not do it at all than 
you know, the number of Facebook pages I look at and it's really just an exercise in, and this is not a criticism because I understand absolutely why people get to that stage, but, you know, really posting to Facebook has become a kind of just a tick box exercise and really they might as well not be doing it or just doing paid ads or or taking a step back and saying, actually, what is the point in all of this and what are we, what is it achieving and not achieving? So the short answer was yes, I would agree, absolutely. When it comes to comms stuff and, you know, uh, it less is definitely more or can be more. I wonder if that's so why I, I was in my uh, in my preparation for today, I was reading some of your some of the articles that you've written over the sort of past 10 years and, and a recurring uh, theme that you seem to return to is the idea of a, a digital mindset and mm-hmm. sort of being digitally literate. You know, I'm sure that means a huge number of different things. And I wonder whether it's it's the organisations that are more in the digitally literate camp that feel equipped to be able to make those decisions about what they are and aren't going to do. And perhaps those who feel less confident in that area do feel the expectation to, oh God, people are on, you know, we've got need to have a LinkedIn account, we need to have an Instagram account, we need to do blah, 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 because actually they they don't feel able to confidently make, as you say, the quite brave decision to stop doing things, mm. to redivert the limited resources that we all absolutely know and recognise are there. And I wonder if over over the past 10 years, you know, working with lots of different types of organisations, what would are there sort of defining characteristics, shared characteristics of those organisations, whether they be big, small, UK or otherwise, where a digital mindset is more prevalent? Or or is it is there no real pattern to that and it's all down to individuals? Um, so I think there are some kind of key traits of those types of organisations. Ultimately, it is about the senior staff in an organisation and their mindset. And I don't think it's the case that they themselves have to be hugely digitally experienced or, you know, skilled, but they just have to be open minded. And I think they also have to trust staff and let staff experiment and demonstrate So in experimenting, hopefully demonstrate when things work, but also critically when things don't work, accepting that that's really useful as well. And then again, that's something you think, well, we tried that. It didn't work, but we've definitely learned from it. So I think it's 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 that intangible thing to do with leadership, which actually isn't really anything to do with digital stuff. It's about people who who I hate the word empower, but what's a better word, you know, who who give um, their staff license to to kind of do good work. So that is definitely the case, no matter what the size of organisation. And I don't really know how you get around that, apart from maybe uh, leadership type courses that aren't to do with being leaders in a kind of very didactic way, but are to do with how you nurture individuals and bring out their kind of best and so on. I think also, to some degree, organisations who who invest in digital and by investing I don't mean spend huge amounts of money I mean they they recognize that it's something that needs attention um and now in smaller organizations or organizations who are perhaps um not as far along in their digital journey I think that's about how they think about you know staff upskilling so sending them on courses for example if they want to go perhaps doing kind of you know regular workshops where 
this kind of stuff is discussed. I think there's lots of different ways you can do it, but certainly you need to kind of, you need an environment where it's talked about rather than it just being kind of another thing. And and as we've sort of said earlier, a lot of this conversation is sort of hovering around the kind of digital Marcoms area, but there are lots of other areas, you know, where, you know, it, it's kind of, there are issues. So as I say, digital as part of an experience or digital as part of the artistic program, that's certainly an area where I think lots of organisations struggle and understandably because it's, it's quite a specialist thing. But I, you know, I think ultimately it comes down to, to the people at the top and how they, how they lead, which isn't really anything at all to do with digital. Yeah. And I think I would absolutely echo that. You know, I'll work at, at Substract working with organizations big and small here and you know in North, in North America I think the ones who who get it who make the most of the opportunities that digital presents they're not always the people with the most money to throw around they mm. are the people where teams feel empowered exactly as you said and I do think it's a leadership thing and I've sort of written about this in the past that I think actually when cultural organisations misstep on digital, it's often, it's not necessarily down to a lack of competence. It's often a lack of leadership and a lack of clarity and a lack of empowerment. Sorry, I just thought of one other thing as well, which sounds a bit jargonistic, but it's genuinely not. I think the other characteristic is that actually those organisations do think about their audiences. So they're not just they're not just thinking about their program or their events or their shows or their exhibitions or whatever it is that they do and getting that content out there. They think they are thinking about how, you know, how does, what are the digital touch points for our audiences and what do they do and how do they, I think the welcome collection are the best example of that. Cause I know Tom has written about, you know, about this Tom Scott a lot in a, a lot of detail. And he said one of their strategy points is kind of understanding users is at the heart of everything we do and and, it, and that sounds like such a sort of simple thing but actually it takes a lot of constant questioning and and thinking and questioning about why you're doing something and if you should be doing something so I think that's the other thing and again a lot of cultural organizations that that the audience agency work with that are highly effective in other ways so not just to do with digital it's usually because they're audience focused and so the same applies with digital I would say. And I think that's un- undoubtedly true that the best digital activity is inherently user focused mm-hmm. and I think forcing that perspective on any conversation means you're going to have impact and reach people and I-, I was doing some some reading Google did some research a couple of years ago now in 2018 around the traits of highly effective teams and the the sort of number one common factor across all of the the research that they did was that that there was an element of psychological safety for these teams so Mm -hmm. people felt empowered but they also felt able to make a mistake and that you know the world wouldn't come crashing down around them and they wouldn't get fingers pointed at them you know there there were other there were were other characteristics that were identified around clarity and impact and sort of purpose but that idea of psychological safety you know that idea that you you Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier around empowerment I think that's hugely important too often it feels like conversations around digital in the cultural sector are so fraught with everyone's so worried about squandering money because no one's got any money and actually digital stuff can sometimes seem to be expensive and if you don't quite understand what it is that you're doing or why you're doing it mm. and you're not in a supportive environment then that is a recipe for failure really. Mm. 
And I think both of us have seen cultural organisations doing digital stuff across all areas that they operate in, whether that's sales, marketing, you know, visitor experience, artistic experience. What are the best examples that you think you've seen of digital in action that could be big, small, you know, recent or in the distant past? People ask me this quite a lot um, and understandably. So people will say, can you give me examples of best practice on Instagram or organisations that use Twitter really well? And um, and that's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that question. And I probably have got some examples. But I, I think first I would say we, we just need to... So th- there's kind of a, a note of caution about when from the outside looking in, people say oh, look at how they're using social media. It's amazing. Isn't that great? And it may well be great. But what we don't see on the outside is the actual impact of that work. So you're just seeing the output. And with social media in particular, of course, as we all know, what you could be seeing is lots and lots of like noise, but not actual any actual, you know, impact in terms of the organisational objectives. So when we sort of judge what's good in digital, we tend to do that from the outside. And when it comes to Marcoms, that tends to be, as I say, we look at stuff and say, oh, that's gone viral or that's got lots of engagement, which, you know, great. Or if it's to do with, um, you know, some kind of, I don't know, a digital VR, you know, some kind of VR experience or some kind of 360 trailer or something. And um, again, you know, you look at it and you look at it aesthetically and you say, that's beautiful and that's amazing. And and but it, but what we don't see is the, the the sort of last bit of that, which is about okay, well, did that sell more tickets, and or did it get more people through the door, or whatever? Now, not everything, of course, we do necessarily has to have a a, a specific action, but some of it does. So so with that caveat, though, I would say, you know, there there are examples of of best practice. Of course, there are. It's tricky sometimes because smaller organizations don't necessarily get the visibility that some of the bigger organizations do the royal academy who i know you, you know really well of course are oft cited in terms of their approach to content which is absolutely and undeniably brilliant you know but they they have a lot of resource to do that 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 doesn't mean that that alone means you'll be good at it though their actual approach is fantastic but i think you know organizations like the royal academy uh, again, the Welcome Collection, I mentioned them before, their use of Instagram, I really like just because it foregrounds the collection first and foremost. So again, they're thinking very much about um, how they use the content that's relevant to them and how they can kind of use that platform to connect with their audiences. Again, sounds simple, but quite hard to do well, actually. Other organisations just generally, I think, that do good stuff. Uh, Royal Historic Palaces, again, do lots of good stuff on the socials, but you know, big organisation. I think actually English Heritage are doing some interesting stuff around digital content. Uh, we did some work with them a couple of years ago and, and they, they, again, they have a dedicated team for this, but they think very hard about the content that they produce online for online purposes. Uh, Scottish Ballet actually doing some really nice stuff across all, in, you know, in all areas. They had, you've probably seen, they had a digital season last year which I think was the first time they did it and quite you know I think by their own admission probably a bit of an experiment again that's an interesting one because I don't know how successful it was in terms of numbers and stuff but but lots of interesting stuff there and then and then of course you've got you know the sort of 
using digital technologies as part of the artistic program or part of kind of experience. I'm slightly biased because I'm on the board, but abandoned normal devices are, have, have been doing for years amazing stuff. You know, like back years ago, they put, you know, they were doing VR experiences in Grisdale Forest and continue to do really interesting stuff like that. And then the other thing I just wanted to mention, which was, which I was alluded to earlier is, in terms of thinking about like doing good with digital and how broad that goes, we did some research with on this creative people and programs work and how they were using digital and that work and that was about how they were using it in lots of different ways. And one of the things that came out of that is because creative people and places have this quite um, specific model for how they work, so they work absolutely in collaboration with their communities to create their artistic program when it came to digital a lot of communities in areas where cpps operate have high digital exclusion and one of the you know one of the factors for digital exclusion as i'm sure you're aware is this kind of sense of not for me so um there are lots of reasons for digital exclusion but the idea that something is oh you know it's not really for me i don't really understand it it's a bit confusing um, and one of the things that came out quite clearly from this research that we did with CPPs is actually if you, when the CPPs were working with their communities and it involved a, a digital project of some kind and that, and that, you know, was anything that sort of touched on digital, actually one of the amazing outcomes of that was that it gave those community members a real sense of confidence around digital and and it sort of mitigated some of those issues around digital exclusion and 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 that's a it's a slight sort of tangent to what you're asking because it's not about organizations doing good stuff with digital particularly but i do think there's something really interesting in how the arts and culture sector are in quite a unique um position to potentially help with some of those issues that some of some of their communities may have i mean that's a it's probably a bigger a bigger conversation but that there were certainly some really interesting examples of individual projects where the outcome wasn't so much oh wow look at this amazing shiny thing or didn't we use twitter well or instagram well but it was about the actual impact on that community so yeah that that you know that that kind of stuff's amazing to see with the with the kind of caveat that we only see the uh we only see the output don't we not necessarily the outcome that Final example is a really nice one, and I. It often feels like the sort of learning and engagement activity that so many cultural organisations undertake is almost the area that could be supercharged the mm. the most with digital. But it also feels like the area of many organisations that feels perhaps least well equipped to engage with digital i i mean i i'm sure there's many good reasons why that is or equally it might just be my experience but it feels like professionals working in those departments aren't they will be the ones who say oh i know i'm not so comfortable using x y or z whereas as you've just identified and i think you know we've we've done work with sort of digital learning projects and the impact can be transformative um, I think so we've definitely worked with organizations who have quite digitally savvy learning and engagement teams uh, definitely but I would uh, tend to agree that they might be more the exception than the rule again actually the ones who in in my experience only the ones who perhaps are doing um, more interesting work 
in that area are they're probably the you know well they are the organizations who are we've who have the traits or exhibit the traits that we've identified around you know strong leadership etc but for sure that there are there are examples of of quite interesting work around learning participation engagement with digital definitely but it's it doesn't it come back to that thing of like who owns digital as well like which department originally originally and traditionally it was always marcoms well that's where it does get interesting because I think in museums it's probably slightly different historically. I would agree. Yeah, because you know, again, and that comes from you know how a museum is structured and etc. Uh, but but maybe and hopefully and I've seen examples. I'm sure you have of as digital becomes much more much more dispersed throughout an organisation and and is less the preserve of of one department. Then hopefully that will you know that that will mean that you know, you get the benefits around things like that. I know you're talking to uh, to Katie Price and I know she's done, is doing loads of, uh, you know, loads of research in the area of kind of that uh, distributed, how do you, how do you kind of get a digi- digital mindset across your organisation? But yeah, I think, I think one of the issues historically has always been that it's sat in a silo, hasn't it? Yeah. And I, and I think I, I share your opinion that broadly speaking, the performing arts sector and the museum sector have digital has developed in those types of organizations in slightly different ways. And I wonder whether that's because in the performing arts sector, the imperative or rather the obvious application of digital was to sell a ticket. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether for organizations where that's less of the driving or at least the primary priority to sell a ticket and the goals are perhaps more around curation engagement with the collection engagement with the temporary exhibition or whatever it might be so narrative and engagement is a starting point rather yeah. than sort of commercial impact and effectiveness but i wonder if do, do you have any thoughts on you know if someone's listening to this and they are working in an organization where digital is seen as something that very much just lives in one department wherever that department is do you have a perspective on how or what can be done to start to spread the load? Is it is it about there being a changes in job descriptions? Is it about changes in structure? Is it about new roles being created? Is it about projects being engaged with that sort of cut across multiple teams but have digital as the primary driver? Is it all of these things? Um, yes, I think it probably is all of those things. I, I think there are a few things to unpick there. Usually, if you're in that type of organisation, and it's, let's say it's a sort of medium to larger size organisation, because if you're smaller, you probably, like if you're very small, you, you, you maybe don't have that issue because it's not, you know, we've got the, the departmental silos. But um, I think with medium to large size organisations, what you have to do is you have to try and start those um, conversations across the organisation about what what could we do with digital? What are we doing now? Is it working? Is it not? Why is it not working as well as it should? We all, you know, what do we all want to do? Um, what's practical to do? Um, because obviously what you might want to do and what's practical might be slightly different. Um so somehow you have to start those conversations. Now that it often happens, I well, that, I think that can happen in a number of different ways. One, it happens because somebody from above says, "Let's do this." But in your uh, question, you were sort of suggesting that 
maybe someone hasn't done that. So it's just uh, an issue where everybody's sitting there uh, thinking like, oh, you know, uh, digital sits within marketing. It's not my thing. And it's not being pushed uh, from senior team. So I think the other way that it can happen is by, you know, you get an external consultant and they come in and kind of shake things up and, and sort of do it for you. Um, or actually the other example I've seen um, is where you have somebody within the organisation who isn't necessarily senior, but is just just talented at what they do and again that's not necessarily that they're you know they may well be very digitally um literate and experienced and so on but also they're i think it's also to do with their um attitude and their ability in, to get people engaged with stuff to fire people up to excite them about possibilities to go and have conversations and just sort of, and again, that comes back to being feeling like you can do that, you know, that psychological safety thing that you talked about. Um, so sometimes where you have people within an organisation who are sort of fire starters who, because um, I think you, you inherently what you can't do is say, here's a digital strategy and everybody, this is your role in the digital strategy. You have to involve people. It sounds very arts and culture and touchy-feely feel and all that stuff, but but ultimately, you have to let people have the conversation where they say, I don't get it or this doesn't seem right or I disagree with you. Because if you don't, it's it's going to be very hard to get to the point where you are all genuinely doing stuff in an effective way. Um, but I'm not, you know, it's it's... I can't remember who said the kind of it's not hard, it's just difficult thing. It, you know, it's not rocket science, but it every I mean, there'll be loads of people out there who who work in these organisations who obviously live and breathe this um, day in, day out. It, it really does require those somehow for those conversations to be facilitated. And it doesn't have to be in a hugely formal way, but you have to do that to start the process, I would say. Because all of the best stuff happens when your entire organisation is engaged in it. You know, all the best social media stories that you would have seen have come out of, you know, someone in the collections team noticing an interesting story about an object and feeling able to take that to someone who then told the person who was doing Twitter that week and they crafted that into a narrative that lots of people engaged with and blah, blah, blah. It's not just that someone was marching around with a digital hat on being digital. A minute ago, not a minute ago, before we started recording our conversation, we were we were discussing the new Arts Council England 10-year strategy. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to have a specific opinion on that. But let's use that 10-year time frame as as the sort of the MacGuffin for this next question. But, you know, if we're, if we're looking forward 10 years, what do you think organisations' priorities should be around digital? Is it around more money? Is it around new roles is it around doing less but doing it better is it around trying to get artistic teams to more meaningfully engage with with the potential of digital you know is it about really trying to make the most of new technologies if there were sort of two or three key priorities standing here in 2020 that you would recommend the sector starts to address because as we know change in this sector happens over a number of years over the next five or ten years in terms of digital thinking, where do you think people should be prioritising their focus? The answer would be different depending on where where organisations are currently in their digital journey. But I would say 
there's a whole question, isn't there, around whether organisations should have that should have a separate digital strategy. Some people feel very vehemently, strongly that they shouldn't. It should all be embedded into the overall strategy. And some people feel that uh, it's it's useful. And I think you can argue both ways. And often, you know, people have an opinion one way or the other, depending on what type of organisation or the type of organisation that they work for. But one thing I would say that where there is value in a digital strategy is it at, at a minimum what it does is it gets you thinking about what just as a general, let's let's think about what the potential is with digital. Like what could we do and where given what we're trying to achieve organisationally, given our current kind of situational analysis in terms of uh, like realism, what is practically sort of achievable over the next five years? Let's say I probably I think 10 years is probably too long in, in, in this world of digital. But I so I so I think in terms of in terms of specific advice, I, I think it varies so much depending on both the type of organisation, the size and where they are now. But but I think actually my advice would be that if it's not already being foregrounded somehow within the organization as a discussion so what can digital do where are the potential areas what what should we prioritize for the next 12 months and then what should we prioritize as you know for the next sort of three years and the reason I say that is because because for some organizations there are some very specific very not not so much basic but very practical things that they may need to do so for example they may need to just uh, have somebody in-house who can use Google Analytics really well, right? So that's a quite, a, for lots of organisations, that's a really simple thing. For lots of others, it's actually still an issue. It, it really is. So so I think it's it's prioritised the stuff now that you know is like really, you just haven't been able to do. And some of those things might be, might seem quite small fry for some organisations, but then also have a sort of ambition have a sort of ambitious thought or discussion around what you know what could digital do and then you know and some of that may involve looking at new technologies and all the rest of it but the really important thing is you've got to have a kind of roadmap to get there because if you don't have that it all just becomes like a theoretical oh well maybe in you know I'm a theatre and maybe you know, within the next three years, we'll look at, I don't know, we'll look at like virtual reality or we'll look at some other thing. And, and, and that's, that's fine. And it's good to have those ambitions. But if you, you don't really have a sort of plan for how you're going to get there. So I think it's about say, you know, it's about those, what do we need to fix now? And, and, and if we have a strategy, how can we break it down into like really um, achievable things? So that's not a massively kind of sexy answer, but it's just a, a practical. And that's why I tend to I tend to fall in the camp of that's why a digital strategy can be useful not because I think it should be a standalone thing because but because I think it gives people a means to think about it and to talk about it which for a lot of organizations they don't necessarily they haven't done or or they don't do so it's sort of a vehicle to do that beyond that I I don't think there are any specific like get yourself on TikTok or I don't know, like whatever, uh, do live streaming, you know, whatever. Uh, I think it's more about the sort of the how are you going to get to where you, you know, it's like what are the opportunities basically and, and how might you get there? It's, it's been interesting to see how the Arts Council in England has funded digital specifically and it feels like the Arts Council and Nesta and then the Arts Council and Nesta and then the Arts Council and Nesta and the BBC have all 
try to approach digital as a a problem to solve in a number of different ways. It feels like there was the at one point there was the acknowledgement that there was a, a clear skills gap that needed that needed to be bridged. Um, so resources and and initiatives sprang up around that, and then it felt like there was a lack of funding to to test things. You know, R and D funding. So it felt like there was there was there was funding around that, and then there was um, you know there have been like geeks in residence type programs, and to try and again I guess start the the shift to being to, to introducing that that digital mindset. If you were recommending an approach to to improving digital resilience digital competency in in the sector which, which of these approaches do you think has been most effective or do you think there is another approach that that, that hasn't been tried yet so I think that I, I actually think that the tech champions um, I actually think that that's a really good initiative and I, and I think that you know, there may be naysayers who say, oh, but it doesn't work because X, Y, Z. But I, I think it's a, a valid approach and it's useful to have people there who have very specific skill sets. One kind of thing I would flag about that is obviously tech champions are very much kind of about, let's let's say, Marcoms. They're very much about content marketing, okay, websites, but let's b- bundle those. And again, there's nobody there who's really an expert in digital participation or that's that's not a criticism because I don't think it was ever set up to do that. So I think that the Tech Champions is a good initiative and obviously we'll wait to see what the actual impact of, of their work be. I think, though, sort of building on that and thinking uh, like where there might be something that hasn't been done that would be useful. I wonder about, I work with a lot of arts organisations who generally just head down and get on with stuff day to day, week to week, who are just trying to kind of battle through everything. And I think sometimes those organisations don't have enough what I'd call opportunities to see, opportunities to share. And that, again, that can, that sounds a bit sort of touchy-feely. So specifically what I mean by that is you might work in a theatre in Newcastle or a small museum in Kent or something like that. And you might try and, you know, read newsletters, listen to this excellent podcast, whatever, to just learn what's going on and uh, make sure that you're, you know, that you're being inspired by interesting things. But actually it's, it's quite time-consuming to do that and people are busy. So I think there is something in how organisations, maybe like the Arts Council, Nesta, The Space, etc., how they are able to facilitate more, I mean, I call it opportunities to see. I think it's something around, again, if you've never done anything to do with live streaming and you're a theatre, you maybe can go to um, a session, like a workshop or something about live streaming, and, and that's obviously useful. But then sometimes you just you need to like see it and you need to see a good example of it. I think it's probably easier with Marcoms actually than it is to do with the other with with some of the other areas of digital. But there's something around how we arts and culture as a sector is, is pretty good at, at sort of sharing stuff and being quite open, especially compared to the sort of commercial brand type organisations. But I think there's more that could be done to sort of somehow get people sort of seeing what's possible, but in quite a, in more than just like reading a newsletter. Or, and, and I don't know what the form of that might take, but but I agree that, the, you know, lots of the approaches that have been put forward, like upskilling and uh, funding and everything are fine. 
but there's still something around how people learn off what other people are doing. And and I think actually at the moment how that tends to happen is a much more informal type network. I think there is actually, having said that, I think there is a plan that the tech champions are doing. I mean, they're doing a blog, they're doing a website, they're doing resources, et cetera. But I sort of mean more than that. I mean, actually getting out and being able to see some of these things, talk to people in something that isn't a training workshop. <laughs> Was there anything else you wanted to chat through? You've got loads of notes. So make me sound like a right swat. No, just professional um, and prepared. I am very professional. I'm very prepared. No, the only thing I was going to say was we were talking about routes to digital. One thing sometimes people sort of say to me is like they real they they struggle to find people with specific experience. It can be hard to fill certain roles, and I think that that is you know that that is an issue in and generally not just in arts and culture. But one of the things I think is some of the some of the people I come across who are sort of you know, really good at what they do. Actually, again, it's it's they, it's more their mindset than it is their sort of skill set. Now, of course, if you're employing someone to do digital marketing and it and it is a and it's a particular level of role, and they need to have they need to be able to you know they need to be able to understand SEO and and uh, you know Google Ads and all the rest of it. Then obviously that makes sense. But I do think there's something about employing for kind of attitude as well and and some of the most kind of sparky brilliant people I've come across it's it's more that they just are curious and fascinated and interested and want to get stuck in in this stuff and I think that's actually the great thing about digital is it's one of those it's that top it's that kind of topic where there is just lots of interesting stuff going on and I think the people who do really well in it are the people who are naturally curious and and actually some people that that's not something that they're naturally that interested in and that's fine you don't have to be like it's not not everybody has to be but I think if you're working at the coal phase you, you probably do need that natural curiosity quite a, a wide-ranging conversation that Katie and I had and I think there are a number of interesting and salient points that that she raised I mean with we're, we're recording this um, the day after uh, the digital culture compass initiative was announced the day after the most recent Nesta digital culture survey was released and both those pieces of work either look to address the perceived or actual gap in around leadership in relation to digital in the sector or they analyze the effectiveness or not of leadership around digital in the sector and that was certainly something that that Kate and I talked about and it feels increasingly as as I'm having these conversations that yes of course there is there's always a question of resources a question of capacity a question of priorities but ultimately the the thread that seems to run through all the difficulties the thread that seems to run through all of the examples of people doing things well is leadership it is around people either really understanding the potential of digital and doing digital well or good quality leadership 
that understands how to set a direction and then empower their teams. And equally, where, where, where digital feels like it's still siloed in one part of an organization or not prioritized, that feels like it, it is always ultimately down to a lack of leadership, a lack of buy-in. You, you've worked in the sector for you know almost 10 years. If all of these things are saying that there is a, a gap around leadership in relation to digital and that the organizations that are making the most of digital it is because of good leadership what is your perspective on that issue i think it's coming down to understanding and allowing people to take risks in your chat with katie you talk about curiosity and the freedom to explore and i think with that comes the freedom to make mistakes but i think that is around controlled mistakes in terms of things like user testing, uh, in terms of things like A-B testing. There's an idea in the arts, I think, that people people require, or not people, but I think organisations expect to have a polished product before they present it to the world in terms of their digital representation. And that ties to what you were just saying about, around it needs to be intersected and integral to the organization rather than a way to present, rather than only to present the work that they do. And so I think that idea that everything has to be waterfall and polished is what prevents people from from achieving what they could do. I, w- I absolutely would not disagree with anything that you said there. And I think this was something that Mike Harris and I touched on the idea that the digital mindset is inherently iterative, that it embraces testing an idea, understanding what can be improved, and then quite quickly being able to make those improvements. Whereas, for example, the exhibitions team at the RA isn't going to isn't going to open an exhibition and be like, ah, oh, you know, maybe we'll try the painting in a different order, or actually we're going to paint that wall a different colour, or we're going to we'll take that one down entirely, yeah, and put something else there instead, yeah. So perhaps in in the specifically they're talking about exhibitions, perhaps it's understandable why embracing digital or engaging with digital in the most meaningful way is a challenge. Because if you've, uh, you know, if your career has mostly been in a space that is very sequential, that has a number of clear steps, and you won't progress from one step to the next step until everything is correct and then you will move on to the next step with certainty. I can absolutely appreciate why digital feels like a threat and feels like a very different way of thinking and operating. However, it feels like in the performing arts sector, the idea of of theatre making, the idea of scratch performance, the idea of going into a rehearsal room and developing performance, trying ideas, that feels like much more a part of how things happen, how shows are developed. So therefore, it's, it's often a surprise to me that it's it's sometimes those performing arts organisations that seem to struggle the most with the idea of engaging with digital as an iterative process. The idea of just as you said, treating you know, digital's primary application should be as a poster that exists on the internet that gives some sales messages and then allows people to buy tickets, rather than something that could extend or enhance the thing you know the show the art and it feels like as well even when people look to extend the art in inverted commas 
in a digital way, that's often through interviews with the creative team yeah. or whatever it might be. And I'm not saying that those are invalid ideas. In my conversation with, with Louise Cohen, which will be out in a couple of weeks' time, she made the interesting point that cultural institutions should start to think more as content creators, yeah. um, which I I immediately know with some degree of certainty some people will bristle at that language we talk about skills gaps quite a lot and that's that seems to be in skills gaps relating to running cultural you know the business of the cultural sector skills gaps around data analysis or around social media or around digital marketing i think there is an equally obvious skills gap around digital thinking in insofar as how it relates to artistic practice yeah and it feels like that's the big opportunity threat however you want to you know if you're feeling uh, glass half full or glass half empty i mean that i i've sat in in workshops with artistic directors of new writing theaters and they described their institution as a, a storytelling machine and i was like yes i really like i really like that description because when you say that with the institution is the storytelling machine and actually a performance on stage is one way of telling stories and equally you could do radio plays you could do uh you know short form video things you could do things that were just text if if the if the institution's purpose is storytelling and sharing narrative and exposing people to points of view that they haven't been exposed to before then that is really interesting. That's a really interesting sort of choice that you haven't included the idea of standing on a stage and giving a performance yeah. as inherently linked to the, the core thing. And absolutely, you are a theatre, so that is always going to be a part of what you do. But the fact that you've identified story, storytelling felt really exciting because suddenly then that opens you up to you're then sort of channel agnostic yeah. if it were and if you see if you see yes the the physical theater space as a channel but just as equally just as valid is the the plethora of digital opportunities and and that felt like a, a real fundamental shift because then you start to redefine your artistic thinking it's not just about trying to pr produce a, a season of plays that's performed in a a venue or venues it's about how do we best deliver the stories that we're that we're developing and for some of those stories absolutely a you know 100 minute two act play is going to be the most appropriate channel for that yeah. but for other stories it might be a serialized podcast over three months or it might be a bunch of one minute videos or it might be long form articles However, it doesn't feel that that is necessarily a widespread shift in thinking. And if we start to think more sort of shiny bauble-like and we think about things like AR and we think about things like VR and how that could impact artistic thinking, I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure what my point is. I, I was very struck. I, I went to Culture Geek a couple of years ago, which is a one-day conference here in the UK, and Toby Coffey, who's head of digital development for the National Theatre, spoke about the work that they have been doing around VR performance. And it it was very obvious that he was describing a, a programme of 
R&D work because they were figuring out what type of stories most appropriately fitted to that sort of experience. They were figuring out whether or not it was easy, possible for sort of playwrights who were used to writing plays to be performed in a traditional theatre space, whether they could easily move to writing a a play that is delivered in a VR experience. He talked about the fact that they realised that you couldn't, for, for, for some of the plays that they had commissioned, that you had to build a physical environment for someone to have that VR experience in, yeah. because without that... It, it sort of didn't make sense. It wasn't rooted enough in, in the physical world. He was talking about the fact that... So they identified a playwright, they identified a story, they identified that you needed to build a, a physical set. You could only put one person at a time through this because right. it was quite an individual story. And they, uh, and another thing that he mentioned was, I think, and I might be misremembering this, but there, there were actors in the space who would physically interact with the audience member at certain points of the narrative in response to what was happening in, in the VR experience, you know, a hand on someone's shoulder, um, that sort of thing, which they noticed massively increased the, the impact of the audience member's experience. And so suddenly then it's not, it's not just a case of designing a VR experience and putting a headset on someone. There's a whole... A whole shift in thinking that needs to happen before you can meaningfully engage in these new ways of doing things to 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 be able to effectively deliver your story yeah. and i mean you know the national theater is fortunate in that number one they have a role title that is head of digital development and number two that they can have partnerships with technology companies that gives them the time and space to be able to experiment with these new technologies and understand how these new te technologies can most effectively be ut utilized by a theater but and, and again this may just be due to my complete ignorance it doesn't feel like that sort of r&d experimental iterative failing and learning from what doesn't work and identifying what does work sort of thinking or activity is taking place elsewhere at many other organizations and i'm sure people listening to this will go well, of course it's because no one has any money no one has any time so we focus on the core thing the core thing is is putting a we are performing arts we are performing the art on a thing at a physical audience set consuming it and that is that is our primary priority but it feels like if we and again people may disagree with this but if we accept that digital is a threat opportunity or at least that it's having a significant impact on shifting consumer expectations and understanding and motivations and ex you know all that sort of stuff then surely there needs to be an R&D program at every NPO funded organization around understanding how digital could be used to differently think about deliver their their main thing and 
I think the sector is only going to be able to really get their heads around that if it's ever decided that that is enough of a priority if they allocate time and resources to it and that probably means doing slightly less of the stuff that they've always done i think that kind of ties into the conversation that you and katie were having around where digital sits in an organization who owns digital because that ties directly into the leadership conversation and if that's confused then it's it's going to be confusing to your audiences if you are splitting up who is in charge or who manages what you're producing if it's disjointed internally i think it's all too easy to to let that slip out to the public yeah and there's lack of coherence yes and it's interesting it's always interesting to look at job titles at the sort of the most senior in the most senior parts of of organizations because i think that says a lot about the priorities of those organizations and we want to see a situation where digital is embraced and understood and prioritized across every strand of an organization's activity. So the need for for sort of centralized, specific digital expertise dissipates somewhat. However, it feels like we're still quite a long way from reaching that point. So in the meantime, you probably need to create or prioritize digital in an overt way in the in the the leadership of organizations and it's it still surprises me how few organizations have senior digital staff and i absolutely do not think that is because those organizations have embedded digital across everything they do i think it's because there will be a digital marketing officer that sits in the marketing team and that is the organization feeling like that's the digital person and actually you if you look at the the organizations that i'm aware of that have directors of digital or heads of digital those teams have a responsibility for a, a, a incredibly broad range of activities because as we've touched on before digital is an incredibly broad range of activities and it feels like until we see a, a greater prevalence of digital in its full fullest scope being staffed i guess then then the sector is going to continue to rumble along with digital being a subset of a business unit within the organization rather than something that cuts across everything that they do and in order for digital to to in order for the sector to respond to the challenge of digital transformation it needs to be an aspect of everything that everyone does and frustratingly it feels like we are still a long way from that being the case i read something on twitter the other day about uh being at a stage of being teenagers as part of a digital transformation journey that the idea of digital transformation has been around for that's that sort of amount of time and that um we're maybe now in like a moody state of being not, not quite knowing where we're going next and it's still evolving and obviously it will continue to evolve and again this is touching on your this is touching on the chat with Katie around uh continuously learning and having a sense of curiosity yeah and i think that again i can understand why that shift in thinking 
seems threatening. Something that has the word continuous in sounds expensive. Yeah. Something that has the word the words curiosity and iteration attached to it Risk. feels ris risky. It feels ill-defined. It feels like sort of it doesn't have an inherent sense of certainty. And as you touched on earlier, Cass, it feel, the, the sector is very good at embracing uncertainty and experimentation and trying things and they might not always work in in the the art, on the artistic side of things but when it comes to the the administrative side of things it feels like there is extremely low appetite for risk and all the research says again katie touched on this but the research that nestor has done time and again shows that organizations where there is a culture of experimentation and where failing is it's not encouraged of course it's not encouraged but it's okay because you learn the most from when you try something and it doesn't work yeah why do you think that google has incubator labs that are trialing all of these new products there are far more uh, google products that have been and died than there are on the market now because they're trying and failing and getting rid of what didn't work yeah and and, and i think you know if you never try anything new then you're never going to do anything new uh, Rob Corston, who's head of digital at the National Museum of Scotland, was asking an interesting question on, on Twitter the other day. And I, I put this to Louise Cohen when I sat down with her. But he said, what's the, the thing that you find yourself coming back to and repeating to colleagues all the time? And one of the things that he said is, what's stopping you from trying that now? You know, you don't need to secure a whole new load of funding, experiment with different formats. You don't need to secure a whole new load of funding to try talking about the work in a different way you don't need to secure a load you know there will be lo-fi low cost sort of low effort ways of trying all of these things and yes that might mean that you have to stop doing something else but it's not forever it may be that you stop doing something else for a month or for a year to try this this new thing you try it and it doesn't work you can then restart the thing that you were doing before what what does an example of this sort of approach look like? And, you know, we've talked a lot about our work with Bridge and our work with, I really enjoy working with Nick Starr because he, I think, really does embrace this mindset. And we were doing some campaign analysis. And as a result of that, Nick cancelled a swathe of tube advertising, you know, posters on the underground. So he was like, well, let's see what happens. And that might sound brash, brash but he was very clear about what he was looking to understand from that because the idea of putting a poster in x station and y station in this format you know they were doing that because that was the way that traditional theater marketing campaigns worked and he was interested what would happen if they stopped doing that does anyone actually even notice or are they on the whole finding out their information from other means my, the reason I'm getting so exercised about this is because it feels like the time is coming. I don't know if it will be a cliff edge or if it will be a, a slow, imperceptible change. But the way that we've always done it is no longer going to work. And I think that is true across everything that we do. We, we're going to need to increase the pace of evolving what we do and responding to the changes in, in the way that everyone thinks about and interacts with the world because if we don't then we're gonna get left behind i think this touches directly on what you and katie were saying about meeting audiences where they are and uh how 
the welcome collection present themselves online, everything being user-centered means that there's a user need backing what they're doing. So people want to interact in a certain way and they're meeting that need. As I said last time, I'm really interested to hear what people think about what we've discussed, what I what I spoke about with Katie. We want to hear your questions. We are on Twitter at digital underscore works underscore. There is a second underscore after the works. Uh, if you want to listen to episode one, which is already out now, you should be able to get it on iTunes. We were slightly stuck in iTunes purgatory, but I think we're now all approved and they've um, validated that we're not hate speech or doing anything naughty so you should be able to get digital works through itunes if you can't then go to substract.com forward slash digital hyphen works and all the episodes are there there's also information about upcoming digital works events so we've got digital works 10 which will be taking place on may the 20th at the goethe institute in london and we will be discussing digital storytelling. There are still some tickets available for that. I'm really pleased to be able to welcome Matt Locke from Story Things. Matt's going to be talking about digital formats. Matt previously worked Channel 4 and the BBC and has really interesting and insightful things to say about formats. And we also are welcoming Hannah Hethman, who is a podcasting expert. Uh, she has a number of her own podcasts. She's worked with lots of different museums to help them develop their podcasts. So I think she'll have some really interesting experiences to share with everyone. In terms of future podcast episodes, the next episode will be focused around accessibility and inclusive design and features a conversation with Robin Christofferson, who is Head of Digital Inclusion at AbilityNet. If you want to contact Caspian or I, we're both on Twitter. I'm at Big Little Things and Caspian is at Caspian Turner. If you want to send us an email, we're on digitalworks at substract.com. Dot com subtract with a k uh, i hope you've enjoyed the conversation today until next time goodbye bye